In November 2014, the MacArthur Memorial hosted a World War I Centennial Symposium in partnership with the Hampton Roads Naval Museum and the Old Dominion University Department of History. The following is a lecture by one of the symposium presenters, Andrew Robertshaw. Mr. Robertshaw has directed numerous archaeological projects on the Western Front over the last 25 years. He is the author of the book, Digging the Trenches. He presented on the topic, Digging the Trenches, the Archaeology of the Western Front. Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for the invitation um, from the memorial. Thank you very much uh, for turning out uh, today. Um, I hope to make this interesting. I want to look at a number of things. I want to look at a very new discipline, that of battlefield archaeology of the First World War. I want to justify why we bother doing it. And I want to look at some case studies, case studies relating to individuals that were found on projects starting really in 2005, coming through to the last few years. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about battles. We're talking about wars. And one of the things that I'm aware of is that um, uh, just uh, almost 200 years ago, there was a battle in Belgium, the Battle of Waterloo. At the end of that battle, principal officers were buried. They were given honored burials, tombs, memorials. The other ranks went into pits. That's what happened to them. There was no individual markers. That wasn't going to change until the 20th century. And when it did, we've got... This kind of thing, the, the monuments of the Western Front that we're familiar with, later taken over by the Imperial, now the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. But as we've seen previously from another image, some of these guys were not so fortunate. We have the missing. And partly what I'm talking about today is those missing. Now, those missing are recorded on a number of memorials, not the cemeteries we're familiar with, but the monuments which actually record those people who ended up buried in trenches, sometimes, but rarely, blown to pieces. People buried in shell holes, lost in no man's land, buried in collapsed dugouts. You can imagine the multitude of ways in which you might end up missing. But to put that in perspective, this is the Teepal Memorial, the monument that has 72,000 names of missing on it. If you were a British soldier, your chance of being on this monument, or the monuments at Tyne Cot, or the Menin Gates, or for the Canadians at Vimy, requires you now, please don't do it, to take out of your pocket a coin, to throw it, to get heads once, to throw it, to get heads twice, to throw it, to get heads three times. In fact, if you did it seven times, that's your chance of being on here. But of course, because they're missing, they exercise an immense amount of interest on behalf of the families who have nowhere to grieve, which is why we end up with the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and the Cenotaph, and it's partly what we're talking about now. And I cut my teeth, really, dealing with a large number of different sites. This is a set of feet, there are British feet in British boots. Actually, this is all we found of this soldier. And I've been asked a number of times, how many sets of human remains have your team discovered? And the answer is about 27. People look a little perplexed, what do I mean by about 27? Well, if this was traumatic amputation, this man may well have died in the 1950s or 60s in a wheelchair. It doesn't mean that he actually died on the spot. Sometimes we actually are very fortunate. This man, Edward Bergman, a German soldier, was discovered by a French farmer. He was plowed up about 10 years ago. The farmer got off his tractor, went back, found the set of remains, put them all in a crate, handed them over to us and said, what's this? 
and we were able to take them to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, then contact the German VDK, which is the equivalent of the War Graves Commission, but funded entirely by voluntary contribution, and say, we have found these remains, and nestling in the middle of it is, in fact, an ID tag. And this is the zinc ID tag of Edward Bergman, a man killed actually almost at the end of the war, killed in August 1918. But for most of our projects, it's actually being looking for sites of the Great War. We don't go looking for the dead per se. However, other people have. The project at Fromel looking for Australians in the last couple of years, Oxford Archaeologist Project, produced 250 sets of remains from cemeteries. They were dug up and reburied. A question we can come back to at the end about the morals of doing that. This set of remains here, or group of remains, belongs in fact to a group of French soldiers killed in the very beginning of the Great War. These are men killed very close to Verdun. In fact, one of them was a novelist and poet, a man called Alain Fournier. Alain Fournier was famous before the war, famous because of his death, buried in fact with his platoon in a improvised burial as we see here. And about 20 years ago, a group of French archaeologists said, Alain Fournier is so famous, we really ought to go find him. And that's exactly what they did. They went out to do what I would call prospecting for the dead. They knew roughly where he was, and they found him, and were able to identify virtually everybody by name because of the combination of identification that these men were actually carrying with them. And this site is now open to the public. No burials there. You can go see where they were found. Elsewhere, human remains are found almost on a monthly basis, very often ahead of developments. In fact, these bodies here are men found quite close to Arras by Alain Jacques and his team. Alain Jacques is the archaeologist for the city of Arras. Um, and my role on these occasions, if I'm called, is not to deal with the forensic side, not to deal with the anthropology, but to deal with the question of dating of these deaths. How do I know that? Because I'm supposed to be an expert on equipment. These Germans here clearly died after September 1916 from the area they're found. How do I know that? They've got steel helmets. There are no steel helmets on German soldiers other than at Verdun until September, October of 1916. And obviously with them is their anti-gas equipment which helps me date them. And as we establish that, we can look at this man here lying on his back wearing a pickle halb this is a burial from 1914, because these German soldiers do away with the spiked helmet very rapidly in combat positions. It simply gives them away. So having established some of the little credentials to this, what we might consider then is this. Because this is one of the most famous sets of remains discovered. In fact, this is quite late in the war. This is 1917. These are members of the Lincolnshire Regiment, the so-called Grimsby Chums. And um, the journalists who came to cover this decided, and you can see it, I think, fairly well, that these bodies here, in fact, have been um, linked um, by the fact that each man's elbow is over the man next to him. And the journalists decided that this was some sort of dance macabre showing solidarity in death. In fact, it isn't. What it is is they had a pit that was rather too short for a number of bodies. They started putting the bodies in from the right-hand end and put each man over the next man. It's as simple as that. So one thing you have to be aware of is you cannot be too romantic about these things. In the same way as here, this is an aerial view of the same site. 
it would appear, if you look actually over here, that you've got some bodies laid out with the legs and the arms and the skull in place, but no body. And the journalist suggested that what had happened here was that in fact that the bodies had been laid out by their friends anatomically correctly, which is an interesting thought in the middle of a war as destructive as the Great War, that you would lay out bodies when you've only found body parts. In fact, what it is is a perfectly normal set of burials which actually have been hit by a shell, which explains what we've got. So you have to be very careful. So all the skills that we actually use, I suppose we might say, in CSI is what we need to bring to this. And of course that brings me neatly to Fromel, because at Fromel, the rules that govern the exhumation of human remains on the Western Front, you need permission from the French authorities, from DRAC, you need permission from, in this case, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, is that we were never able to use DNA or isotope analysis. However, when they set out to find the 500 bodies, they found 250 at Fromel, it was all prefigured on the use and recovery of DNA, which explains why they've identified over 120 of these men by name. Um, in a previous project run by the group of enthusiasts called the Diggers in Belgium, they recovered over 100 bodies, identified one by name, which suggests that their methodology was very poor. And my methodology was born here. There are lots of projects relating to Great War archaeology and other groups, but we started in the village of Ocean Villas. And I'll just give you an idea of how early it was and how many experts there were. Because this is a communication trench behind British lines, it is not what you'd say desperately exciting. But in terms of methodology, vitally important. We went into this area having been aware that the owner was being metal detected on a regular basis. People staying in our guest house were getting up early and detecting before dawn, seeing what they could steal. As simple as that. We therefore agreed to help her by checking her garden and seeing what was there. And we found a communication trench system. That's a nonsense. We actually knew it was there because it shows up on the aerial photographs and the trench maps. And we knew it was right behind our house. So why did we bother? Because we didn't know what was in it. And what we found was brick lining. We found brick lines. And in fact, the bottom of the trench was lined with a layer of bricks. And the experts, the people that came to visit Avril Williams' house, came along, looked into the hole we were working in and said, oh well, that was all done by the French. Why? Well, when after the war, when they had to live in the cellars because there was no houses left, that's what they did. We didn't have the heart to tell them that we'd actually checked. And the brick lining was put in in 1915 when the British took over the sector from the French. We knew exactly who'd done it and how long it took. More importantly, the poem Edmund Blunden talks about the, the poet Edmund Blunden talks about the brick-lined trenches of Ocean Villas opening onto accommodating cellars. It's exactly what we found. But then we discovered a layer of shattered tiles on top of the bricks. And of course, people said, well, this had came from the stage in the war, because people are experts, when the roof was on the house, and the shelling meant that the slight, the tiles, fell into the trench, tumbling in, and were then crushed by soldiers' marching feet. All of that would have been logical, had it not been for the fact that archaeology doesn't stand alone. We'd already checked the war diaries, and we found that in the diary of the 87th Field Ambulance, who were in the village, they said the brick linings are a problem. Why? Because when they get covered in mud, they become slick, and the stretcher bearers are coming in with their boots around their neck, with their grip being achieved by using stocking feet. This has got to stop, it says. What we then remembered was that layer of shattered slate on top of the bricks. 
Now, no war diary ever talks, no, sorry, no history of the First World War ever talks about how you deal with sleepy trenches. But obviously we now know, don't we? If you're in a village and you've got sleepy trenches, you get soldiers to go get the broken slates and tiles, you smash them up with sledgehammers and mallets, and you put them in as a non-slip layer. Health and safety, 1915 style. But of course that means that we can now say, why do we bother? Because there's always something to learn. And in a very, very early project, having gone from the village of Ocean Villas, we were approached by the BBC to do a project in the village of Sayre. And in fact, the director of that project is um, Katrine Clay, who's just here. What a coincidence. And it was for the series Ancestors, and we were looking for the dugout in which Wilfred Owen sheltered and about which he wrote the poem Blinded, or The Sentry. We found an old Bosch dugout, and he knew. And it describes how, in the shelling, the sentry is blinded by a shell. It, it's a very moving poem. And the idea was that with money from the BBC, we'd use a team of archaeologists, and we would find, miraculously, the entrance, the dugout, and be able to talk about it. We failed. We found many things, but we didn't find anything related to 1917 when Wilfred Owen was there. We found 1915 and we found 1916. And one of the first things that we did on day one, morning one, is we found a set of human remains. Now remember, we weren't looking for them. This was something that we knew might happen. And when we did, we actually had a headless body. Don't worry. It was only the result of him being laid in a natural position in a shell hole with his head higher than his body. The body had been untouched by the plowing, but the plowing had taken off the head. Uh, we had somebody come onto site who turned out to be a journalist, so never trust the public on these occasions. And she came along, looked at this set of remains. We weren't going to stop people from doing it. We wanted people to pay their respects. And she looked at him and said, I suppose you'll use dental records. <laughs> Which is interesting. And not least being the problems of finding um, a, a nearly 100-year-old dental records. In fact, what we did is we found around his neck an identity tag. That identity tag was sent back to the UK to be worked on. Uh, we then continued to work on the project, trying to find the dugout, trying to find, let's be honest, Wilfred Owen's biro or something. And we found another set of remains, this time a British soldier lying on his back on top of the trench system. That's interesting. He was on top of the trench system. The other one was behind the trench system. And the trench system was filled in by upcasts from a mine. That mine was blow blown on the 1st of July. This soldier's lying on top of that upcast, therefore he's a burial of the 1st of July or later in the war. In fact, the regiment he was in, the King's Lancaster Regiment, was only there for one day. They lost 110 dead attacking this position on the 1st of July 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme. We then continued to work and we found this man lying on his side, very close to the first soldier and slightly behind the second, a German Unteroffizier, a um, German NCO. Lying on his side, uh, with him he had his watch, a mouth organ, a harmonica, and a Neolithic flint scraper. He knew what it was. This guy became known as the archaeologist. And we took the whole thing very seriously. The bodies were recovered. They were handed over to the Wargraves Commission. This is their mortuary at Borain. The two Germans are in the two cardboard boxes. The unknown British soldier is in the oak coffin. Uh, we asked permission to do DNA and were told you couldn't do it. It's not our policy. We approached the German VDK who said basically do what you like. 
as long as it's ethical, do what you like. We have no money. Can you pay for it? Yes, we've got TV money. That's fine. <laughs> and the work was done. And in fact, uh, it was very, very interesting. Uh, the reason, by the way, that the VDK have no money is that they're actually entirely sponsored by the public. There are no state funding at all for the German War Goes Commission. And they have still a million missing from the Second World War on the Eastern Fronts, which they regard as being rather more pressing than this one. Um, back at UCL, University College London, the conservation people got to work. And uh, we had already gone here. We'd already gone to the Monuments of the Missing. And we took it in turns to read out the names of all of those members of the King's Lancaster Regiments because we knew that we'd read his name out. What we didn't know was who he was. He was then buried. He was buried, the dig was in the October. He was buried the following spring with full military honours, honour guard, everything, military attaché, chaplain, everybody there from the youngest recruit in the regiment to the oldest NCO, all there. And they took it in turns again to read his name out, a rather smaller list, but I'm afraid 110 missing. There was nothing that we could do other than say we knew his height and we knew his age. That was it. And as soon as he was buried, we were approached by two sets of families who said, we think it's our granddad, we think it's our great uncle, can we provide DNA? We said yes, but there's no point, no sample is allowed to be taken. And every 2nd of July when I go to the monument now, I will find that there is actually on the grave a little rose tree left behind by the families, uh, the Red Rose of Lancaster. But back in the laboratory, this identity tag was cleaned. It was extremely unclear what it meant. It actually said Reserve Regiment nothing. It then had number seven company and a personal number of two it should have three digits. There was nothing we could do. And at that point, I probably would have given up. Luckily for me, I wasn't there because the South Korean student working on this one turned it on into its back and cleaned the back of it as well. And on the back of it is written Jakob Hones and the word Munchingen, the village he came from. Now, we then got in touch with somebody who was an expert in the German army in this area, and he actually is from Fayetteville, New York, and Ralph Whitehead was able to give us some help. Now, I know you should never make contact with people you meet on the internet, but Ralph seems to be okay. Um, and we provided him some information. We said we had an ID tag, and it belonged to a man we thought called Jakob Hornis. Could he give us more information? And he said, yes, his number was... Reserve Regiments, 121st, Number 7 Company, personal number 228. He was also able to give us his height and also able to give us his age. 36 years old, six children. He died on the 3rd of June 1915, fighting the French, which somehow I found reassuring. I don't know what that was about. Um, my grandfather wasn't serving at that point, but nonetheless, it meant it felt little better than knowing that he'd been killed by a Brit. However, what then happened was that the archivist in Munchingen, Alfred, said, um, would you like to meet the family? And we said, yes. So, because they still live in the village, you know. And within 24 hours, we had this picture. And this picture shows there, Jakob Honis, Behind him, his brother Christian. Jacob was going to die, leaving behind six children, one of whom was born on Christmas Eve 1914. 
He was still alive when the body was found and identified, and his grandson went to see him and said, Dad, they found your dad on the battlefield. And the elderly gentleman in the care home said, I always knew they would. I always knew they would. Christian was going to die on the 15th of July, 1916, fighting against the British, buried in the village of Miramont. And this photograph is taken in the village of Miramont. And it's behind the German lines. It's a German rest area, exactly the same as the village of Ocean Villas we'd worked in previously. The only difference was that when we went to do the archaeological dig, we were unable to get our accommodation in Ocean Villas. So the BBC booked us into a gîte in a converted barn in the village of Miramont. We followed the route of these men to their deaths every time we went to site. But there was more work to be done. We had to work on our unknown Unteroffizier. And here, in fact, we have the harmonica, the Neolithic French scraper, and the watch. Stopped at about 10 minutes past 6. Don't know whether that was morning or evening. And one of the things that I'd always been brought up to believe is that bodies in the First World War, Second World War, are looted. And if you don't loot them, then the enemy will. Now, clearly, we'd found this complete pocket contents. He had his tobacco with him, he had his money, he had his watch, and he had a book. And the book was very, very, very decayed. However, it was sent back to UCL, and they got to work on it. And what did they discover? It was a bank book. And it came from a village called Halberstadt. Halberstadt is not in southern Germany, where Stuttgart and where Württemberg is. And the previous guy, 121st Regiment, was a Württemberger. This man, potentially, was from northern Germany. That meant little sense, because he was wearing the uniform of a Württemberg soldier. So we got in touch with Ralph Whitehead and said, Ralph, is there any Unteroffizier in the German 121st Reserve Regiment who has any contact at all with northern Germany? We didn't mention the word Halberstadt. That's the way you do it. He said, yes, there's one. It's called Alfred T. Licker. He's an Unteroffizier, killed on the 6th of June, 1915, in 121st Regiment, in Number 7 Company. He was a painter and decorator, and before the war, he moved to Stuttgart to start a new business, but obviously kept his bank account in northern Germany. We checked the bank out. There wasn't any money in the account. But the real reason we checked it was just to see a bit, a bit of verification. In fact, we found strangely, even if our young soldier had survived, and he was 26, is actually is that he wouldn't have been able to use the bank after 1936. Why? Because it was Jewish-owned. So we'd touched one war and then recovered quite a lot of another one. But what then happened was that um, Walter Rapp, Jakob's grandson, put an advert in the Süddeutsche Zeitung. He said we'd found a, a soldier called Albert Thielicker. Is there anybody out there in southern Germany related to Albert Thielicker? And a woman called Alison Thielicker, bit of a clue here, came into a university in Stuttgart for the English Language Theatre Company. She was running a play called Flatley VC about the First World War, about an Irish VC winner who comes back to the island to recruit and has a, a crisis of conscience about sending men to the Western Front. And someone said to her, well, Alison, can you ask your husband, Carl, whether it might be related, this man might be related? And she went home and said, you know, Carl, do you know in your family, is there an Albert Thielicker? She said, yes, he's my great uncle. He went missing 
in the First World War in June 1915. The family never knew what happened to him. But guess what? I've got a photograph of him. Now, the strange thing about this is that Alison and Carl Tielicker met in the UK at Reading University, where Carl was studying English. And what he was doing was writing a dissertation on his favorite war poet, who was Wilfred Owen. And this photograph is marked by Burns. If you look on the right-hand side on the bottom, you can see scorching. This is the only thing recovered from the ruins of the house in Halberstadt when it was bombed by the RAF in May of 1945. So again, you go from one war to another. And in fact, what happened was, shortly before Carl died, we all went to Halberstadt. That actually is Alison and other members of the team. And we went to see where this soldier had come from. And the two Germans were buried here, near Labri, near Metz, about 180 miles from where they were found. Why? Because the German VDK couldn't afford to bury them in a local cemetery on the Somme. But at least they were buried with their comrades. And then it was decided to put up a monument. And that monument was erected just at the edge of the field where the men were found. And when it was unveiled, the director of the Museum de Memorial de la Grande Guerre in Peron, Guillaume de Foncaire, stood with me and said, this is the most unusual monument on the Somme. I went, what? Is it the smallest? He went, no, it's not the smallest. But it links in death two Germans and one British soldier on the same monument. This is the first one of that type. Isn't that interesting? A hundred years later, and reconciliation still takes time. And then this turned up. It turned up on eBay, of all things. It's a postcard. It's not very clear here, but if I tell you, it's a wreath hung in the trench. And down there it says, in memory of our 40 fallen comrades of number 7 company, 121st Reserve Regiment. Now, had that arrived before we did the archaeology, it would have been inexplicable, except that we know that this is dated June 1915. Those men that we found had been buried in shell holes or scratched graves on the back of the trench with the intention that after the war, the German soldiers would come back, recover their comrades, and give them the honored burial they deserved. The fortunes of war did not that allow that to happen. And we potentially missed the other 38, or they were recovered and buried in mass graves as unknown German soldiers. Our two at least had the great privilege of being buried. And I have to tell you now that the American expert on the recovery of human remains saying that if you fail to identify people, whether it's deliberate or accidentally, you've effectively killed them twice. They've died once in war, and they've died once because you failed to give them that identification. So this now becomes explicable. Until they did the archaeology, this would make no sense at all. You need the archaeology to understand the evidence we've got here. So I'm just going a little further to justify why we do it. And then we went on to work here. This is the site of the Battle of Loss, Luz. We were raided by detectorists. They came in in the dark. They came in with torches. And this was a mass of human remains when we got back there on the Wednesday. We decided that we'd lead a permanent security guard until we finished. We were going to protect these men because whoever they dug through, we were never going to work out who that man was. 
Again, he was probably British, and he was buried as an unknown soldier of the Great War. But that afternoon, in my clumsy attempts to help, I managed to find a German soldier. I'm probably one of the only academics ever to be able to say that I've broken the jaw of a German soldier with a shovel. He was 19, but he had been dead for some time. And in fact, he was part of a mass burial. We had a number of bodies, one on top of the other. But because of the conditions, we had an incredibly high level of survival. We had leather, we had paper, we had cloth. In fact, we had virtually everything. And the other problem we had was we almost poisoned ourselves. What we'd not realize is the reason that the middle of these bodies were missing is that actually being given a layer of chloride of lime to help them decompose. As we worked inside our little plastic tents in the dark, working in six-hour shifts through the night and through the day, what we didn't realize is we disturbed the chloride of lime. So we had to open the tent up and have a rather cold location, but at least not get problems with hands, skin, and eyes. But what we found were very well-preserved sets of human remains, all German. Two were Prussians, the rest were Bavarians. And as we heard the other day, the Bavarian archives in Munich were incredibly useful. They survived the Second World War intact. And what we were able to do is reconstruct how the bodies were laid in the grave and then do this. This is the back of a German soldier's tunic. He is a Bavarian. And whether it's Bavarian or Württemberg, their records survive intact. The rest of the German records for Prussia were destroyed by Allied bombing right at the end of the Second World War. You don't stand much chance with them. But this guy here, right in the middle of our pile of bodies, had a complete uniform and the ribbon of the Iron Cross second class. Now, based on our conversation earlier on, I don't know what he thought of it, but he pinned it onto his uniform and it was in place. Up on his shoulders he had here, number 16, for 16 Bavarian Reserve Regiment, the List Regiment, very famous regiment. And quite importantly, what we were able to do was recover this, which is a postcard. And that postcard gives us his name. His name is Leopold Rothermel of number 9 Company, 16th Bavarian Reserve Regiment, killed on the 13th of October, 1915, during fighting at the Battle of Luz. And it says in the records in Munich that his place of burial is not known. Well, it is now, because I was there when he was buried. But very importantly, we found this. And this is the remains of a patriotic songbook from the beginning of the war, from 1914. What do we know about Leopold Rothermel? Well, he was exempt from military service. Why? He'd done his two years training, but now, age 22, he was not expected to fight. Why? Because he was a concert violinist. He was the concertmeister. He was exempt from service. Sadly, his brother Otto was killed in the Battle of the Frontiers, and this man, Leopold, volunteered. He went off to war. Now, what do you think of a concert violinist as a soldier? What do you think his chances are of being any good? He's a corporal within two months, Iron Cross within three months. He's doing very well. More importantly, there is, according to the history of the regiment, an outbreak of musicality in the regiments when they form a band and an orchestra. It has to be Leopold Rothermel. Now, it's not very often that you can do a link from the First World War to Elvis Presley, but I'm going to do it. Because this songbook includes the words and music to a song that Elvis Presley brought back from his service in Germany when he served in the American military. 
The song is Wooden Heart, that some of you remember. It's a German marching song. So we'd identified our soldier. We knew about his brother. We'd seen the memorials. We wanted to try and find the family to get the photograph. We'd done it before, so why not? Why wouldn't it work? We went to find where the family had lived. We knew the address. His father was an electrician. His mother ran a tobacconist. When we got to the house, there was nothing there at all. It was a memorial park. We walked over to look what the plaque was for the memorial park. And it said it was a memorial for Allied bombing in 1943 that wiped out the entire city block. That's why there was no family. But there was one final twist to this story. Do you remember I mentioned that Leopold was about 23, an artist, a real artist? He was a corporal. We knew that from his collar dogs. He was also a recipient of the Iron Cross Second Class in the List Regiment, the 16th Bavarian Reserve Regiment. Well, guess what? In the same year that Leopold died in battle, fighting against the Leicester Regiment, we know who killed him. We know how he died. There was another soldier, not German, but Austrian, a volunteer in number three company of the List Regiment. Slightly older than Leopold, an artist of sorts, with the Iron Cross second class. That man was Adolf Hitler. As I said, if you look at this war, you will immediately see another. We're now in a situation where we're continuing to do work. We have never yet gone prospecting for the dead, but we've been approached to do just that by a large number of people. We have a burial of at least one man and probably his comrades in the village of Bokwa. I've spoken to the mayor and said, we'd like to mark the plot. We know exactly where he is. And the mayor said, I wouldn't bother. Why not? You see, the way it works in French law, if a family don't claim building plot for 100 years, we can sell it, the community gets the money, and we'll build on it. So if you're going to do any work, you've got about a year. We have another site, the site for the Leinsters, where the bodies, probably about 54 of them, we know where they're buried because the man that had them buried was a German officer who roughly 100 years ago wrote to the family of the young officer that he'd found and said, I buried your son and his comrades, and he gives a map reference. It's now actually under a glass house in a large industrial area. We think that site needs protection. And there will be others. We're not necessarily going to set off to look for the dead. But when we do, we'll be ready. What we're trying to do here is to say to all of you, this story is in some ways depressing. Somebody once said that throwing, sorry, somebody once said that a death in a war is like throwing a, a stone into a pond. The ripples go out and they come back. And as I've just proved with the son of Jakob Honnes, it still matters, no matter it's a hundred years ago. And it doesn't matter to me and my team whether we're dealing with French, Belgian, German, or occasionally British. We will do everything we can to make sure these men get the best treatment possible to ensure that they are buried, not as an unknown soldier, but either by their regiments or, if we're lucky, by their name. And of course, as I've indicated, the good news is, because the Australians paid for the use of DNA at Fromel, the rules have now changed. They cannot prevent us from taking the DNA in future. 
which means that we'll be able to start building up a database. Now, I'm not advocating going to the Western Front and prospecting for the dead. Frankly, for Britain, there are too many of them. What I'm telling you now is that when human remains are found, I will do everything I can with my small team to ensure every means available are used to establish who they are. We do not want to see these men killed twice. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.